0: hi everybody thank you so much for being with us in this post-draft week after the nfl college draft for our pro football weekly podcast i am hub arkish the executive editor and general manager at pfw our managing editor arthur arkish is alongside and um i don't know about you arthur but uh i'm hoping to get some sleep one of these nights it's been a pretty hectic week or so and just winding down and trying to Line up all the questions and stories after the draft. It's a fun time of the year. Um, and uh, you jump right into the rookie mini camps and then the OTAs and the veteran mini camps. Uh, so it's certainly been a hectic period around the National Football League.
1: Hub, you're only about six weeks from uh, maybe getting some potential sleep when the NFL uh, does go dark for about a month, so I hope you can hang in there. Uh, yes, I would certainly agree it has been hectic, but uh, we wouldn't have it any other way, and uh, there's some new... Uh you know, plenty of new storylines to follow all across the league. I know we both have plenty of feelings, uh, on this NFL draft, which had no shortage of surprises and head scratchers, along with, uh, some, some things I think we did predict. So, uh, we're going to break down some of the, uh, some of the highlights for you here. And, um, uh, yeah, like I said, before too long, uh, rest time will arrive.
0: All right. So so let me start with the one that is absolutely driving me crazy. I won't say it's keeping me up nights, but but it really it, it is making me nuts. Uh, I, I tend to listen to uh, NFL radio on Sirius a lot because I'm in the car a lot. I think they do a fantastic job there. A uh, lot of great hosts, a lot of great guests. Obviously, we follow um, you know as many other uh, NFL media outlets as we can, in addition to our contact with all 32 teams. And if I hear one more pundit say that Daniel Jones is the most controversial pick in this draft when it is not in the same stratosphere for controversy that Kyler Murray at number one is, it's just it, it's, it's making me nuts. I mean, all anybody wants to talk about is what the Giants did at six when clearly this whole draft spun off and one of the craziest picks I've ever seen was Kyler Murray at number one.
1: Yeah, I definitely hear where you're coming from. I, I don't, I don't disagree per se, um, but I, I think that most have known Kyler Murray was going to be the pick uh, in Arizona for a couple months now. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe the sort of the shock factor uh, kind of wore down on that. Um, there have been whispers that you know Daniel Jones was the giant sky. Everyone knows about the David Cutcliffe connection, of course. Um, but to see that actually happen at number six, to see Dwayne Haskins fall all the way to their, their division rival at 15 and Drew Locke fall out, all out of round one altogether, um, I think is where some of that is coming from. Um, but I do agree with you. I mean, to, to what the Cardinals did was unprecedented. Uh, say what you will about the Giants, whether it was a reach or not, um, but we've seen plenty of teams reach uh, on round one quarterbacks. Uh, there's so much more context with what Arizona did that uh, uh, I can certainly understand where you're coming from with that one, Hub.
0: Well, and what's bothering me about it is that I think it's really bad reporting and we can all do better. I mean, at the end of the day, what's happened is that uh, we're all freaking out because we didn't get it right, because we didn't have Daniel Jones uh, in front of Dwayne Haskins or in front of Drew Locke. I mean, I'm not going to change anything until these players prove it on the field, which will be two or three years from now. No doubt in my mind that Dwayne Haskins was the best quarterback prospect in this draft based on all the measurables and tape and things that teams use and the teams that I talk to. Um you know, But but I, I quite frankly, uh, understand why the New York Giants took Daniel Jones. And, and if six was too high and they could have gotten him at 17, uh, they're still very happy with the player they got at 17. So I don't know why you worry about that. Um, what, what, what just I can't get my arms around is why nobody is talking about the fact, or at least asking the question, if the Arizona Cardinals had not taken Kyler Murray at number one, what other team was going to take him in the first round, and how far would he have fallen?
1: I believe the Oakland Raiders would have taken him at number four, um, and I think there would have been uh, some other teams that would have pursued him, whether it was the Denver Broncos uh, or other quarterback needy teams. So, yeah, I think we do have a a little bit of a disparity on that, and and Hub's talking to a lot more people around the NFL than I am, uh, but I can't shake the feeling that uh, he would have been the Raiders guy, so I don't think he would have fallen that far, up.
0: Which is interesting, Arthur, because I don't think there's any chance the Raiders would have taken him at four. Uh, And and I know, you know, we're all working our sources and trying to get comfortable with what we've got. And yes, you know, John Gruden fancies himself the quarterback whisperer and all that. Um, But this kid doesn't come close to fitting what John Gruden is usually looking for. And so I suppose it would have been fun if Gruden had taken him at four. But anyway, uh, it didn't happen. It's time to move on. It's time to figure out what all these teams did Um, and you know you look at the situation in New York uh, if they were going to take Daniel Jones, they are convinced that Eli Manning has got some good football left in him. I think if you watch the tape of him the second half of last season, it's hard to debate that. I'm not saying he's you know the same player he was four, five, seven years ago, uh, or or where he's at right now, but he definitely can still play at this level. And so you know Jones ends up in a pretty good situation where he's probably going to get to sit and watch uh, for a year a guy who you know some think is going to be a Hall of Famer.
1: Yeah, I don't think he's going to be a Hall of Famer, and I don't think he has much left in the tank. So I guess we'll disagree on that, too. If you look at the the teams that he beat up on last year in the second half of the season, uh, they were playing backup quarterbacks, and uh, he's going to have to do it all now without uh, Odell. So I, I just, I've got real concerns about the evaluation uh, of the quarterback position there overall. Uh, but as far as a good landing spot uh, for Jones, I think it is because the fact of the matter is the Giants at least believe that Eli has something left, uh, so he won't be rushed into the lineup. I don't believe Daniel Jones is ready to play just yet. Uh, but uh, I think what bugs me about the pick, and and I've talked to a couple people since then who thought it was a fine pick at number six, it's clear uh, Damon Gettleman wasn't the only guy with eyes for Daniel Jones. I get it that there is some allure there uh, in, in certain NFL circles, but um, I just don't get it. If you're talking about sitting on for a couple years uh, in his Dave Gettleman. I don't know whether he did it tongue-in-cheek or not, who said maybe they could sit him for three seasons because that's how long their love affair with Eli Manning could last. Um, uh, I don't get it at all because I think it's an old school. I think it's an antiquated uh, way of thinking uh, when you look at how teams Um, are maximizing kids on rookie contracts, especially at the quarterback position. uh, I believe it's the greatest individual perk that you can get or the biggest advantage that you can find in the NFL in 2019. And teams that aren't actively looking to take advantage of that, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Look, Dwayne Haskins was a one-year starter, and the first thing Washington said is, yeah, he's going to compete immediately for the starting job. Uh, Daniel Jones, I believe, started four years at Duke, and uh, he's still not going to get a chance. Again, I don't think he is ready just yet. Um, but that's where I think a lot of this kind of gap comes from in, in the different lines of thinking, whether it's in the media uh, or draft Twitter, if you will, versus the way certain people in, within NFL circles are viewing Daniel Jones.
0: Let's talk about Drew Locke all the way down at 41 or 42. I talked to as many people who thought Drew Locke was the best quarterback in this draft as I did who thought Kyler Murray or, or Daniel Jones were.
1: Yeah, and I think that's awesome value. It's kind of ironic because uh, you know John Elway, the guy who's just taken you know countless swings at the quarterback position, most of them misses, um, and to be able to do what he did to to leverage that uh, trade down with Pittsburgh in round one and end up flipping that pick to to move up ten spots and go back to back with Dalton Risner and Drew Locke, uh, I thought was fantastic work hub. Everyone knows Elway has been uh, enamored with Locke since the senior bowl. Um, he, I think, finds himself in a pretty good situation now too because clearly the Broncos have their wagons hitched to Joe Flacco for 2019 Locke another guy who's not ready to play um, might have the highest ceiling of any of these quarterbacks. I mean, all the physical tools are there. Uh, you have some concern about his lack of progress at Mizzou. Um, you know, with in, in three years of a really quarterback-friendly system, and then last year, of course, under Derek Dooley, went a little more pro-style. Uh, did have his best year in terms of completion percentage, but um, a lot of really intriguing tools here. And now, I believe it, it's up to the Broncos and. You know Vic Fangio and Rick Scangarello and everyone else they have there um, to try and unlock those tools because they are intriguing. Um, and there was some whispers. Maybe you know more about this. I believe it was actually Howard Balzer who reported uh, on the Friday of the draft at hand size and, and yes, Drew Locke only had those nine-inch hands, smallest of all the uh, you know the top tier quarterbacks. Uh, but that they really did contribute to his slide. Not sure if you know anything more about that.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I know that small hands is a problem, and, and it can lead to fumbles. We've seen quarterbacks uh, who had all the other tools and even put up some pretty good passing games, but careers were, were uh, uh, you know, either shortened or, 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 or uh, always challenged by the fact that they had small hands. Uh, but it's not in and, it's in and of itself a disqualifier. Um, you know, again, with nine-inch hands, it's still plenty to hold on to a football and throw it. Uh, but uh, it probably was uh, one issue. It's hard to Imagine that that in itself would, would allow him to drop the basically you know 30 to 35 spots that he fell when you think about where he went. So, um, I you know, I've already on record as saying I think Haskins of the four is clearly the best prospect. Again, we won't know who's the best player for a couple years, um, but not only. Uh, Do I not agree that that Daniel Jones was the most controversial pick of the draft? I'm going to stick with Kyler Murray on that. It also wasn't the biggest surprise of the draft to me. To me, the biggest surprise of the draft was the way that Josh Rosen absolutely crushed his transition from the Arizona Cardinals to the Miami Dolphins. I mean, with everything that we've heard about this young man, I don't know how anybody in his situation could have handled that 36-hour window better than Josh Rosen did when he was moved from the Arizona Cardinals to the Miami Dolphins.
1: Yeah, this is one thing we will agree 110% on Hub. Uh, I loved the the, the video that he shot um, after the trade and thanking everyone within the Cardinals organization, even having a a little joke uh, for Kyler Murray about his uh, house that just went up on the market. And if Kyler's uh, in the real estate market, which obviously he is now, uh, that Rosen's got a place for him. uh, Just awesome to see him take the high road. And really, you know, if you talk to people inside, that building, obviously Steve Kime wouldn't be one of them to go on the record and say it, but I think Rosen had a lot of fans from the way he handled uh, really the the worst Situation among all the five first-round quarterbacks last year. He was given no chance to succeed. Uh, he never hung his head. He never complained. Um, and he got a raw deal. And, and you know, now he gets a fresh start in Miami. It's a shame he's going to another team with no playmakers and no offensive line. But uh, they're taking the long view, and, and clearly they think Rosen, uh, over the next handful of years, uh, can emerge as, as their franchise guy. And if he does, man, did he come in an incredible bargain.
0: See, Arthur, if we just talk about it a little bit, I'll work you around more to understanding that's another reason the pick of Murray is so controversial, if in fact Rosen was as well liked and well respected within that organization. Um, obviously, the pick of Kyler Murray all spins around the hiring of Cliff Kingsbury as the head coach. That is also right. one of the more controversial moves of the offseason. We'll have plenty of time to break that down over the next couple months and even throughout uh, the rookie year of Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. Um, I think that Miami did a really nice job of acquiring Rosen. I think Rosen, as I said, just crushed the way he handled uh, the transition. What I do not understand is pretty much everything else that the Miami Dolphins did in this draft.
1: Oh, uh, see, I loved Christian Wilkins at 13. I had zero problem with that. Um, I think they get a, a really unique football player who I think is going to emerge as an interior pass rusher, even though we didn't see it all that much uh, at Clemson. And I think another part of this, and everyone knows, I mean, gosh, the uh, his character off the field is just unassailable. Not only his football character, but what he meant uh, to that culture, what he meant in the classroom. So uh, I think he's the kind of guy, uh, if Miami emerges with kind of their two faces of the franchise uh, with their top two picks in Christian Wilkins and Josh Rosen. No one's going to care what they did after that. Now, yes, I didn't know much about Andrew Van Ginkle of Wisconsin, the linebacker in round five. Uh, Michael Dieter, maybe the, the first Wisconsin pick in round three, the offensive guard, might have been a little bit of a reach. But if you come away with one starting offensive lineman, if not two, between Dieter and Isaiah Prince, uh, in addition to those two guys we talked about, they took a couple late round flyers on running backs because we know uh, Chad O'Shea coming from that New England system is going to use them a bunch. Uh, Maybe you'd like to see a little bit more bang for the buck, but I, I understood what they were doing. Um, I just, uh, you know, outside of the headliners, not a lot to really kind of blow your hair back, I guess. Well, I
0: I understood what they were doing, too, and and I'm not challenging the quality of the prospects they took. Uh, I will tell you, Christian uh, Wilkins and Cleveland Farrell were arguably two of the highest character guys in this draft. Unfortunately, I can't find a draft board I respect that had them in the top 20 players. They were first-round picks that probably belonged between 20 and 32. Again, that all plays out over the next year or two. I I just don't see anything on the tape that tells me that that, that those guys are going to be any more than, you know, at best, good football players. And that's really you're looking for something more than that in the first round. But what made no sense to me is that what Miami did more than anything else was stockpile picks for next year. I mean, uh, and and this is a team that is is rebuilding now that needs as many new warm bodies as they can possibly get. And I don't know who they're going to line up this year.
1: Yeah, the offensive line in particular is concerning. It looks like this Michael Dieter in round three has to be a plug-and-play guy. So, um, yeah, I get what you're saying. But, Hub, I think that this was a team that largely, until Josh Rosen fell into their lap, was playing for 2020. I know Brian Flores won't admit it. Uh, but you've seen sort of a, a shift a little bit organizationally with even Stephen Ross, a guy uh, you know uh, uh, who was never met a star he didn't like and has never uh, met a splash move he wasn't welcoming, uh, seems to have kind of shifted his philosophy here and getting this solved for once and for all. So uh, it seemed to me like a team that was looking toward 2020 until Rosen fell into their lap and then he had to adjust last minute. Um, but I'm okay with stockpiling picks for the future if you're kind of building it for the long haul around Josh Rosen.
0: See, again, though I don't understand playing for what in 2020. I mean, we heard people talk about a much better quarterback group. They could still take one. You know, they didn't give up nearly as much for Josh Rosen as the Arizona Cardinals did. But unless they don't believe Rosen is the guy and they're they're positioning themselves for the number one overall pick, what are they playing for in 2020? That's what I'm missing here.
1: Well, it just wasn't an overnight rebuild. I mean, look at all the guys that they, they sent off from, you know, Cameron Wake to Robert Quinn to, uh, you know, last year, of course, in Dominic Kong Mike Ponce, the list goes on. There just isn't a lot of talent to work with here. So they're stockpiling picks, whether to use them in 2019 or 2020. They know that they need more shots at rebuilding this thing. So uh, just not a lot of talent on the roster right now. Yes, you'd like to see them come away with more of it right away, but uh, they're just not fooling themselves into thinking this is going to be any type of a quick turnaround.
0: And I, I'm not sure we're on the same page here. I I get that. But they're just delaying the rebuild by a year by waiting till 2020. That, that's what I'm getting at here. We, we agree they're rebuilding, um, but, but you would think they'd want to bring in as many good football players as quickly as possible to get the rebuild going.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, whether they're spending them this year or next year, I, I'm not sure if it's six and one, half dozen and the other. I think what we can uh, agree on, and clearly what Miami agrees on, is that they weren't going to compete this year. So uh, they're putting it on their, their new coaches to, to develop these kids as they get more draft picks, and uh, we'll just wait and see what happens. You know, I, I, I don't know that uh, uh, there's one right answer or wrong answer, at least in my opinion.
0: Thank you to all of our great sponsors. We also want to give our thanks to our executive producer, Dan Mott, who makes our podcast and pretty much all of our broadcast efforts possible. Dan does such a great job for us, actually making sure that this ends up uh, available for your ears. And of course we thank all of you for downloading our podcasts uh, and for listening to them each week. I'm Hub Arkish, uh, executive editor, general manager at Pro Football Weekly, along with our managing editor, Arthur Arkish. And let's pick up where we left off, Arthur. And, uh, uh, we can each take a crack at this one. I'll let you go first. Why is Tyreek Hill still a Kansas City Chief?
1: Oh, uh, because the Kansas City Chiefs have proven time and again that they don't care what type of people they have on their roster; or they just care what type of football players they have up.
0: Well, I that that you know, I think is fair.
1: Um, <laughs> I, I, it's too simplistic, but let's be honest here. Uh, that's, that's why that's because Andy Reed and, and Brett Veach uh, uh, are, are willing to take on uh, character issues uh, as long as they can contribute on the football field. And uh, unfortunately it starts at the top with, with Clark Hunt too, who hasn't uh, taken a, a strong enough stance on this one either
0: yeah you know again i think that's fair but but you got to look a little deeper than that too because they will take chances on these young men um but kareem hunt was gone overnight and i'm not going to say for a lesser offense I guess I am going to say for a slightly lesser offense, only because while I do not differentiate between domestic uh, domestic abuse uh, against a, a, a young woman and a three-year-old child, in the case of Kareem Hunt, he kicked at and for the most part missed a young lady. Um, it, it seems pretty apparent that Tyreek Hill, if he didn't break the arm of his three-year-old son, he has been repeatedly punching him and abusing him. and And, and, and right up until pretty much draft day. And so I think that's the part where I'm not going to fault him for giving players a second chance. uh, But I think you have to question, you know, you could argue innocent until proven guilty. If you go back and listen to the 11 minutes of audio tape that was released between Tyreek Hill and his fiance, at no point does he admit to breaking his, his son's arm. He also doesn't dispute some of the other completely inappropriate abuse that he does Um, apparently heap on his three-year-old son. Um, And and I guess the only argument the Chiefs could have is we've told him we don't want him around. He's not around the team. He's not allowed to be in the building. But before we completely indict him, we want more evidence. Um, I'm not buying it, but I'm going to guess that's going to be their argument. And, and, you know, there, there are some who will buy that argument.
1: I think the one other uh, differentiator between the two cases—well, I'm sure there's plenty of them, but one other that sort of comes to mind up uh, is that Kareem Hunt had a chance to come clean with his bosses and didn't. And uh, they determined that he still was lying um, and used that as the decision to abruptly cut him. Uh, I don't know what type of conversations they've had with Tyreek Hill, but maybe it's just that he hasn't uh, had a chance or that they feel at least he has been, uh, you know, has disclosed fully, you know, his involvement in this whole thing to date. But frankly, from what we've been able to gather and how this thing looks, uh, that full disclosure you would think would be enough uh, to, to, to cut ties immediately so yeah I just can't really um, come up with any reasons and I just I, I think it's it's awful and I think it's a bad look for the NFL as well as more time passes as, as he's not at least put on the commissioner's exempt list
0: Yeah I mean I think it's pretty obvious from the a uh, fairly thorough investigation apparently done by the Kansas City DA's office prior to this uh, audio tape being released that he certainly hasn't come clean with anybody, um, but but we don't know all of the details behind the scene. Another particularly strange uh, addition to this whole story, and I'm not sure if everybody caught it. This happened, I believe, on Monday or Tuesday right after the draft. Uh, the news broke that, that Tyreek Hill made a 911 call to police... Uh, he was apparently at a hotel or in an apartment somewhere because he had already uh, had been hit with a restraining order to stay away from his son, but he apparently had video surveillance, uh, some kind of camera inside his home, and it's not that unusual. A lot of people have it with today's uh, various devices, and called 911 because his fiance was allegedly passed out and the three-year-old son was running around the house unsupervised. So, you um, you You know, for those who hadn't heard that part of it, the case does continue to get stranger and stranger.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, I got to be honest here. I'm among those who didn't really hear much about this. So I'm kind of uh, uh, scurrying to try and get more info. But I think what uh, I can say, even without doing that safely, uh, is that as unfortunate as this whole situation is, uh, as inexcusable as it is ever for a man to put his hands on a woman or a child, um, Crystal Espinol uh, seems it, it not, she never deserves that, of course. Uh, but it seems like she has made some curious, uh, some some bad decisions throughout this thing too. Whether covering up for Tyreek or whether you know whatever this appears to be in that audio uh, that was released the night of the draft. Hill very clearly uh, claims that, that Crystal has uh, put her hands on the child as well. So it just, and, and obviously the kid was removed from the home, removed from both of them at one time. So uh, just, a, again, an awful situation and uh, a lot more to, to come of it. Uh, and of course, we'll be reporting it as much as we can at Pro Football Weekly.
0: Yeah, the the one thing that we know for a fact uh, with the release of that audio tape, that 11-minute tape is that both uh, Crystal Espinall and Tyreek Hill are are guilty of obstruction of justice. I don't know if obstruction of justice is is a political term or a legal term. Um, I think it's a legal term. I think that's actually what Ray Lewis pleaded guilty to going all the way. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, And so we know that they are both at least guilty of that. Uh, I think we also know that no matter where this goes next, Tyreek Hill is going to get hit with a significant um, uh, suspension by the league. Uh, There's no two-way around that. If you go back to Adrian Peterson uh, missing a year for his uh, corporal punishment of his son, which again is a little bit different. There are a lot of people out there who believe in corporal punishment. I'm not one of them. Um, but, But he was not... Um, abusing his son. He was allegedly disciplining him in a controlled situation. This would appear to be something worse than that. Um, I'm guessing that that may be the opening benchmark uh, that Tyreek Hill misses at least a season. He's going to miss some extended playing time. The league hasn't made that statement, but I think we can be pretty certain that that's what's coming next uh, once they have figured out the various legal ramifications of this and whether he even remains a chief.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it seems fairly clear, Hub, that the Chiefs are now preparing for this uh – What feels like an imminent uh, outcome, too. Of course, they they drafted Mecole Hardman, one of the fastest wide receivers available last weekend, and uh, someone that it looks like they're going to look to lean on pretty early, potentially in a Tyreek Hill-like role. Uh, They also brought in Darwin Thompson, the really explosive running back later in the draft, who could be another fit in some of those gadgety uh, roles that the Chiefs uh, uh, so brilliantly had created for Tyreek Hill on the football field before everything uh, went sideways off of it.
0: All right, Arthur, um, we've talked about a few of the hotter news items over the last weekend or so. Let's get to the draft specifically. I'm going to let you go first, and we'll do two or three arrows up, two or three arrows down. Uh, Let's get the negative out of the way so we can finish on the positive. Who are the two, three, four teams uh, whose drafts disappointed you the most uh, over the course uh, of the the three-day weekend?
1: Yeah, uh, Hub, I'll start with the 49ers. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly, to have Nick Bosa fall into their lap at number two is outstanding, and although we might have preferred Quinn and Williams uh, at Pro Football Weekly, it's not like we're going to, uh, you know, we're not going to slam the, the Nick Bosa pick to the 49ers. It looks like it should be a really good one, assuming he can uh, sort of fit in with what they're doing. there, both on and off the field. Um, but after that, you know, I like the players a lot in Debo Samuel and Jalen Hurd. I think they're both fascinating, but I just, I- I'm Leary when a team that appears to be still pretty far away is investing so much at the wide receiver position. Remember, they traded up just last year for Dante Pettis, uh, a kid I like a lot, and I think he showed a lot as a rookie. So uh, to double up in rounds two and three with Debo Samuel and Jalen Hurd didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It felt like a luxury uh, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch can't afford. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, in round four, to go with Mitch Wisnowski, the, the highest drafted specialist uh, at number 110 overall, he went way ahead of where Michael Dixon went last year and all-rookie Uh, excuse me, an all pro uh, as a rookie Um, to me, that was just way too rich. I like some of the picks they made later, but fairly hard to recover from there in my estimation. Uh, And then the Atlanta Falcons is the other one I would point out. Excuse me. I love the idea of, of, you know, rebuilding Matt Ryan's protection. I thought Ryan played a lot better than people thought last year, uh, despite a deteriorating offensive line. But um, to, to go with Chris Lindstrom that high at number 14, when Garrett Bradbury's still on the board at 18 uh, to try, trade back into round one and give up second and third rounders for the right to draft Caleb McGarry, a guy we had as a, a late day two prospect. Um, uh, the value there just didn't really seem to align for me uh, all that well. And, you know, I, I thought some of the picks they made later on were fine. Um, but I just I guess I like the way the Vikings went about rebuilding their offensive line so much better with Garrett Bradbury and then Drew Sammy at number 114 overall. Uh, seemed like they got a lot better value, uh, at least in my eyes, than the Falcons did, huh?
0: Well, Arthur, I, I agree on those. I'm going to add a couple more. I'm still trying to figure out what the Detroit Lions were doing. I think that uh, in the case of TJ Hawkinson, I've already called him one of the best tight end prospects in the last decade. That he falls to them at eight, I think, is great fortune for them and definitely good value there at number eight. But then the next two picks in rounds two and three at 43, Jelani Taval from Hawaii, who we had as clearly a day three pick and possibly not till the fifth or sixth round. The next one up. Will Harris, the safety from Boston College uh, at 81 in the third round. Another day three pick and probably a fifth rounder. Um, you know, Travis Fulgham in the sixth round. I'm not going to knock it two more, but we had him as a priority free agent. Um, uh, you know, even, even Austin Bryant, uh, the, the fourth defensive lineman uh, out of Clemson, you know, 117 seemed a little rich. And we always, you know, qualify or try to qualify this for folks. These kids may all turn out to be all pros, and nobody's saying that they they're bad football players. The way at least I and, and, and we at Pro Football Weekly try and evaluate drafts in the immediate aftermath is based on a consensus of the draft boards that you've looked at or gotten access to or at least got some information on. Did teams get players that were expected to go higher? Was it great value? Did they get them right about where they belonged? And if they got them right about where they belong, that's a good draft. Or did they reach up for guys who might have been later and therefore not get full value out of their picks? And in that regard, I go to the Dallas Cowboys. Now, now I get they didn't have a first-round pick, and Imani Cooper is looking like a pretty good pick for them in 27. That, in essence, is how it works out. But, but Tristan Hill at 58 just it makes no sense this is a kid out of Central Florida um, who, who's got some excellent tape he, he does have some excellent football skills but but you talk about red flags everywhere about character and attitude and 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 this is a team that is being forced to rebuild the defensive line because of the chances they've taken on guys like Irving you know and and, and Randy Gregory and even Tyrone Crawford and to do it again um, with your first pick in the draft, Jeff, just makes no sense to me. Um, uh, I get Connor McGovern at 90. Uh, Tony Pollard, I thought, was a, a, again, uh, a real reach at 128. Now, you know, you're looking to have a backup plan in case Zeke Elliott gets hurt. I uh, actually loved Michael Jackson, their fifth-round pick, the, the, the corner. I think he's an excellent cover corner guy. Um, I just have to mention that they drafted, uh, you know, two Jacksons <laughs> in the fifth-round, Michael and Joe. Uh, they're neither are a relation to the family. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, Joe, uh, Father Joe, uh, the a little bit of a at defensive end so just just yeah. don't really get you know, what the Cowboys were doing there. Um, and, and I'm not real impressed by it. And then, you know, the other team that, that bothered me a little bit, and, and some people are raving about it, um, is the Oakland Raiders. And, and I, I am a Mike Mayock guy. Uh, Mike is a friend. We're not close friends, but we did several um, national radio broadcasts together of NFL games, working for Westwood One. He is as good a guy, as class and individual as you'll find. I think ready to be a GM, has trained for this his whole life, even though it was kind of outside the the league, um, but I'm getting back to the value proposition. And, and um, you know, I, I think that Jonathan Abram at, at, at 27 is certainly a, a really nice value. Um, but Cleveland Farrell, I think that he would have probably been there. I think there's a good chance he would have been there at 24. Minimally, they could have moved up to you know 15, 17, 18, wherever he was most likely to fit. And I don't even like Josh Jacobs at 24. Now I, I mocked him to the Raiders there because you know it was a huge need, but I didn't. I thought Miles Sanders was the slightly better prospect. That doesn't matter because I'm not an NFL scout. But I didn't see any of these running backs uh, uh, with clear. First round grades again. Um, the you know Mike obviously loves the the the, the toughness and, and and the character issues with these guys. But Trayvon Mullen, another Clemson play, Clemson player at forty, they just took way too high. Um, you know Max Crosby at one oh six is a really interesting prospect, but he's kind of got boomer bust written all over him. So um, those are a few drafts I just wasn't overly impressed by. Now we get to do the more important stuff and the feel good stuff, Arthur. Give me two or three that you really liked.
1: Uh, yeah, Hub, we hit a little bit already on the Miami Dolphins. I have them here because I just think the value uh, in getting a Josh Rosen, and, and I like the value of Christian Wilkins at thirteen. So if those two hit, I think we're looking back on this draft as one of the best in the league. Uh, we hit briefly on the Denver Broncos, but I love what they did for a second consecutive year. Uh, not only with those, you know, with the move down to get Noah Fant, and uh, you know, and to get Drew Locke and Dalton Risner, but I like some of the later picks as well. So uh, very exciting uh, haul for John Elway, and then a couple. But we haven't hit on just yet. I have to credit them. Look, if I'm going to drag Washington, any, any chance I get because I just think it's such a clown show there uh, with Dan Snyder and Bruce Allen – well, then we also need to praise them when they do great work. And to have Dwayne Haskins fall to them at 15, uh, fortuitous or not, was outstanding value to get the best quarterback in the draft per Pro Football Weekly's ratings. Uh, I thought Montez Sweat was the type of talent that you do gamble on. And uh, yes, they did give the Colts a second rounder next year to go up and get him. Uh, but if he turns into the double-digit sack guy that he looks like on tape, uh, no one's going to worry about what it uh, cost to get him. So I love what they did in round one. But Hub, they weren't done then to get Terry McLaurin at number 76 and Kelvin Harmon at 206. uh, You just went a long way toward rebuilding uh, your wide receiver group. And I just uh, am super excited about what those guys bring to the table as well. Uh, You got a a potential starting center in in Ross Pershbacher from Alabama. Jimmy Moreland I've talked about on this podcast is one of my favorite sleepers to get him late in the seventh round. Uh, I think he's got a shot to stick in kind of a rebuilding uh, secondary. So I really like what Washington did a lot. And then the New England Patriots. Uh, I thought it was so fun that Bill Belichick did something he hadn't done in 18 years and drafted N'Kiel Harry with the final pick in round one. I love the fit there. Uh, I think he's going to contribute as a rookie for Tom Brady. Uh, They got your guy in round three and Chase Winovich like him a lot. Uh, the move up for Joe Juan Williams is interesting because Greedy Williams goes one pick later, uh, but there's no doubt that when you look at sort of his measurables, when you look at uh, what he brings off the field, that Joe Juan Williams is an outstanding fit for the Patriots, too. Uh, Yadni Kahuste, a great value pick later on for a potential future starting left tackle. Uh, there are more picks here, too. It was a huge draft class, but uh, by the looks of it, New England did really well as well.
0: Yeah, Arthur, I, I obviously disagree with you on Miami. We've already talked about that, but certainly agree on Washington and, and, and the Patriots. And I do think that with Joe on Williams, you know, he's drafted as a cornerback, but there's a pretty good backup plan there, too, uh, should they end up deciding he's going to be a safety. Uh, a couple other teams. My favorite draft of all is the Tennessee Titans. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons at 19. I understand he's got the ACL, but NFL players come back from ACLs all the time. And this kid was top five, top ten on most of the boards of the people that I respect. I love even more AJ Brown at 51. I realize he fell to 51. I don't understand why I had him as the second best wide receiver, uh, in this draft after DK Metcalf, who fell even further, by the way. Uh, I like Nate Davis at 82. Love Amani Hooker at 116. DeAndre Walker, the edge rusher out of Georgia at 168. Just tremendous value everywhere that Tennessee went. And then the other team that I think just, you know, again, killed it. Um, is the, is the Pittsburgh Steelers, and, and part of it is simply because, you know, you mentioned Bill Belichick did something he never does. Kevin Colbert making a dramatic trade in the first round, making a dramatic draft trade at all, this stuff doesn't happen, <laughs> but um, to go up and get Devin Bush, now getting him a 10 is probably right about where he belonged. I, I think that he and Devin White were two interchangeable prospects. I'm not sure which one's going to be the better pro. I lean a little bit um, towards Bush because of his production, Um um, but but the difference between Bush and White and the rest of the, the, the prospects in this draft was night and day and so love that Colbert made the move and then was still able to bounce back in the third round and get Deontay Johnson now I'm not as high on Deontay Johnson as some people I'm not sure this is great value but it's pretty obvious that what they see um, is, is the next uh, they hope Antonio Brown and then again you know just really good value I think Justin Lane the cornerback from Michigan State at 83 uh, Ben Snell at 122. Um, Zach Gentry, I'm just going to tell you, at 141. Maybe even a little bit of a reach in terms of value, and I've said I'm basing this all on value, um, but this is a fascinating prospect. 6'8", 255, was a four-star quarterback recruited out of Arizona in Michigan. As a freshman, realized that his future might be a tight end, requested the move, but only has a couple years playing the position. He's already an outstanding receiver, occasional case of the drops, um, but they add 10 pounds to him. You could have the kind, and I'm just saying the kind of athlete, that Gronk was. Nobody's pretending this guy's going to be Gronk. And then again, Sutton Smith uh, at 175 an edge Rusher out of Northern Illinois. I think Pittsburgh got excellent value. And then Arthur, much like what you said about liking as much what the, the Patriots did is who they drafted. I thought what Seattle did, you know, the Seahawks, they always come up with these prospects that, that either you don't know as much about or um, there is great controversy, but the one thing they all do is, is they run sub 4 five forties. Um, they got a bunch of those prospects, but what I love Is they went into the draft with four picks and came home with 11 players. Uh, You know, and you talk about this is the opposite of what Miami did. You know, Seattle not necessarily rebuilding but restocking. And I thought that John Schneider and Pete Carroll had a really good week on the way they worked the board and got the picks they wanted.
1: Yeah, impressive to start the week uh, prior to the Frank Clark trade, like you said, with a league low, four picks, and emerge with that massive haul, no doubt about it. Uh, I did have some issues with, with some of the you know the value that they seem to obtain, just nowhere near aligning with uh, where our projections were, but again, I guess that's why they're Pete Carroll and John Schneider, and we're Pro Football Weekly. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, I remember plenty of us uh, panning the 2010 draft uh, in Seattle, too, and we all know how that one worked out for them. So, uh, But, how about I we disagree all the time. People who listen of this podcast, obviously, know that. Uh, but just very quickly, back to the Miami thing why is it okay for teams that seemingly are ready to go for a Super Bowl now uh, to sort of eschew future picks to trade up and go do that sort of much like what the Bears did and have done in recent years? But then on the flip side, a team like Miami, a roster that's nowhere near ready, uh, why do you have a problem with the thought process of trying to, to stockpile future picks? Uh, to try and fix the problem over the long haul. I guess I don't understand that.
0: I, I don't have a problem with stockpiling future picks, Arthur, but I think you just answered your own question. The Chicago Bears, as uh, one example, believe that they're ready to contend for a Super Bowl right now. The Miami Dolphins probably don't have more than 10 to a dozen NFL starting caliber players on, on, on their roster right now. And, and I just don't understand why you're delaying the rebuild. I, I have no problem with the theory of, of stockpiling picks uh, you know, when you're a team that has plenty of talent. But when you're at when you're arguably the least talented roster uh, in the NFL, why, why you're delaying adding talent is the part that I can't get my arms around.
1: All right. Well, they also, I believe, are projected to have a league leading uh, like 120000000 million-plus in salary cap space next year. And again, until this Josh Rosen thing uh, really seemed to finally gain legs. We've been talking about it forever. Uh, but once it became a, a clear, you know, realistic possibility and they moved for him, Uh, It seemed that everyone, uh, you know, at least thought that Miami was uh, uh, positioning themselves for the 2020 quarterback haul, whether it's Tua or Jake Fromm, uh, whoever else, you know, Justin Herbert, all the exciting guys in that mix. So I feel like they, uh, you know, they they, they, uh, adjusted accordingly, and and that's when their plan shifted a little bit. All right, we got to
0: run, Arthur, but I think you're talking around a little bit. What you're trying not to come out and flat out say is the Miami Dolphins appeared to be tanking, and and we don't think about teams (laughs) tanking in the NFL. Now what they've done is tanked for two years and so that's the part that I really don't understand but again it's just it's, it's it's what makes this all so much fun guys it's the debate uh we hope that you all uh, have enjoyed uh, Arthur and I arguing about it uh hopefully you can uh, get to the water cooler or get to your favorite sports bar and debate it with your friends uh at the end of the day this is what we love about the draft 32 NFL teams have a realistic shot at getting to a Super Bowl this year because of the way the NFL and free agent the NFL draft and free agency work you know it won't be long before we know that there's really only 10 or 12 teams with a realistic shot but right now everybody's got one and that's why everybody has enjoyed the past week so much we hope you have enjoyed this week's pro football weekly podcast it's gonna get a little slower though over the summer but we're gonna be back every week and line up some great guests for you again our thanks to dan mott our executive producer our great sponsors most of all our thanks to all of you for joining us we'll talk to you again next week on the pro football weekly podcast
1: 18- plus.